Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the 21 Gun Podcast. I am your host as always, Kevin Sullivan. Tonight's episode is the first of a five-part series featuring Hamidi Jassim, the infamous terrorist whisperer of Iraq. He earned that title while sniffing out anti-American and anti-Iraqi insurgent terrorists while working as the highest-ranking enlisted member of the military at only 19 years old. When I first met Hamidi, I was taken back by how normal he was. He's like every other guy I know, a father, a husband, a veteran. His primary concern is just like the rest of ours, and that's for the health and well-being of his family. For all intents and purposes, he's a typical American dad. What isn't typical is how we got here. The following interview was obtained over several days at Revival 1869 in North Carolina. This episode was initially going to be a typical 21-gun interview. The story he told, however, was anything but typical. The format of these episodes will be different than the typical 21-gun conversational interviews. I simply hit record and let Hamity tell his own story in his own words. The only editing I did was to cut out the bar's background noise and minor interruptions. What's interesting is that though Hamity and myself are both veterans of the Iraq War, our paths into service were markedly different. I grew up watching the geopolitical struggles of Iraq being played out on cable news. Hamity watched them from his backyard. You know, I would say for me personally, uh, it was uh, the first time in my life to experience a dictatorship uh, because I actually was in the south of Iraq when the troops entered um, uh, Iraq from Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. And um, I, I don't know if you know that, that 400,000 Iraqis died uh, by the hands of Saddam because uh, when the troops passed us, we thought that the troops were going all the way down to liberate Iraq completely and to take Saddam down. Um, once the American has passed, um, everybody was convinced that Saddam was gone because you had resistance in those areas that started going after the Ba'ath Party members who were Saddam's loyalists in the area. And then all of a sudden, the Americans pull out. And that massacre happened is because of that decision. Because the people got fooled. They didn't know that. And um, Saddam had not sent most of the Republican Guard in the fight in Kuwait at the time. Because the whole entire Iraqi military got demolished as they pulled out from Kuwait. And they had multiple airstrikes. So the Iraqi military was literally done. It's the highway of death. It was like soldiers just ran away. The whole army just got demolished. It was done. So Saddam actually, this is like details that I learned after... You know, I was recruited by the U.S. intelligence in 2005. That Saddam actually packed his his bags to leave. He kind of got convinced that this is over. Americans are here on the borders of Baghdad. As a family, we're done. And the, and the two people that jumped up and told him that, give us one last chance and we'll get Iraq back to you. It was Kamakal Ali, his cousin, which was the most dirtiest general in his regime. It's called Kamikal Ali because he, he bombed the Kurds with chemical weapons. And his son-in-law, um, Hussein Kamal, who he later assassinated himself, like killed himself. Um, these two were the most vicious people in the regime. Perhaps one of them is his son-in-law, one of them is his cousin that did all the dirty work for him. And they had the Republican Guard in Baghdad that was not participating in the fight. So they send the Republican Guard 
and they were able to fly helicopters. They were now able to fly jets, but they got permission to fly helicopters. And he ordered the Republican Guard to come towards the south and uh, basically to kill as many people as possible. Literally, they actually brought trucks that dig the ground, made like massive grave sites. They went to people and they told people that we're evacuating you guys because we're going with a war with Americans. You got on the trucks and they will take you and they will bury you with, while you're on the trucks. Just want to kill everybody. Yeah, you help Americans. You let them come in. You didn't resist. You didn't fight. And they wanted to kill everybody to the point that they wanted to take Iraq back. So imagine you're in a village or somewhere in any city in the south and trucks pulled in and says, you need to leave. The military pulls in and says, you need to leave. Get in the trucks. If you don't get in the trucks, you're dead. They have some names of people they're looking for. They just, if you resist it, and you ran away, guess what? Now they're taking your family, and they're burying them alive. So I was a, a young kid. I was about five years old. Uh, I was in, you're talking about the whole entire South. But where I was, I was in a, in a little town called al which is outside of Coot. It's, it's really about hour and a half, two hours outside of Coot. Nothing really important. Like, we didn't have any. We had one pharmacy. You know, this is where my grandfather was. It's, it's a very small little thing. And um, if you keep going further, you'll go to Basra. That's where the Kuwaiti borders. So we were kind of like in between Nasria, Basra. We're just kind of like in the in the angle there. Um, and all of a sudden, um, at a, at a five year old, you don't you're not informed in politics. You, you don't know what the hell's going on around you. You're just being a child. But you're witnessing war. You're witnessing adults around you being nervous. Um, and my grandfather at the time notice trucks, empty trucks, and have heard people are getting in trucks and just driving them to nowhere. And as a five-year-old, I still remember that my grandfather, we heard like, you know, you hear when, when the big convoy approaches, down there there's not many things going on, there's no highways, you know, you're in the middle of a village. When a trucks or tanks or anything comes towards you, you start hearing the voices of the convoys coming towards you. And my grandfather said, run. And we just didn't know what the hell to go. We're like, what do you mean run? Run where? It's an empty land, an open land. We had a river about like a mile, mile and a half. And he said, run to the river and never stop. And at that point, people were like, we didn't resist. Why the hell do we have to run? And the, the elders knew this regime pretty well because they have lived longer. You know, since Saddam was the director of the head of intelligence, they knew this wasn't good that they were not coming to let anybody alone, that they were coming after everybody. They ran, and we ran to the river, and that's when I witnessed my first time in my life witness a fighter helicopter in Mi-24 doing, like, an actual strike, some people. And they were using mortars as they saw people run away. Mortars were shooting mortars towards people. Uh, they have used live ammo, heavy machine guns, and we ran to the river. We ran away. And people who actually stayed in the village that was about just maybe half a mile away, people who stayed and just decided, they said, I didn't resist, I didn't do anything. I was just a farmer doing my thing. Uh, we never saw these guys again. They got put in a truck, and they're gone. Was that? That was a few families. I mean, it was like 
you know, quite a, you know, I mean, I think I have my, maybe 15 kids all running around me as I ran. And, uh, you know, when, when you run and you hear explosions and you're a child, you're just running. You had no idea what the hell is going on. I mean, at that point in my life, I'm trying to figure out this is an enemy, but who the hell is the enemy? Like, the Americans passed. They didn't shoot anybody. But who the hell is these guys? And then to realize later, these are Iraqis. These are your own people. They're trying to kill you. And you, we went in and we just hid there for, for about a couple days, actually, two or three days. We were there, uh, just hiding away. And the one thing that I, I remember to this day is that uh, the helicopter uh, could have killed us. Uh, we were pretty easy to target. Like it's it's really. And later on, the, the the you could see the pilot coming through with the helicopter, and you can see he has he's armed. You know, there's guns. It's it's a fighter helicopter for the Republican Guard. But it made it didn't make sense why you were getting shot at from further. But this guy is right above you. He can just kill you. And the pilot just going around, and it was like about maybe the maneuver was about fifteen minutes maneuver. And once that helicopter makes the maneuver, it leaves away. And all of a sudden, the helicopter started shooting out of nowhere, like it's a place there was nobody there. And we were like right here, and it's like right next to us. He just emptied his whole ammo. And we didn't know what that meant. We didn't know what that meant. Uh, what I learned later is that Kamakul Ali, if you refuse to kill or shoot, he will execute you. And this poor pilot didn't want to kill people. He didn't want to kill women and children. But if he doesn't, as he's being ordered to strike, that... Um, he would get killed. His family would get killed. So he emptied his ammo pretending he is killing us. He's like taking care of the target, but he knew where we were, and he kept going around us, and he didn't take much time. He just got, went around a couple of times, and then he came back and airstrike a little hill and burned the hell out of it. And we didn't know what the hell that meant. It was just like, what the hell is it's going on? And, and he left, and then they didn't come further after us. So it looked like he actually shot and, and informed that he, he eliminated the target, and th that's it. Iraq was, and still is today, an immensely complicated country. And to grow up under Saddam was to grow up in an isolated, violent, secretive world in which Iraqis were turned against each other. This is the way it was for Hamidi's entire childhood. Saddam was in power way before the Iran-Iraq war. You have to know Saddam was the head of intelligence during the 70s and then became the deputy, which is the vice president here. And he was the actual president while he was the vice president. And perhaps our president back then was scared shitless of his own deputy. That's how scary, scary Saddam was. I mean, you have to know there was... Uh, newspapers, whatever it was, the New York Times back then, or whatever it was, featured Saddam's back then when he was a deputy as one of the most influential people in the world. He is extremely smart. And, and if you go down analyzing history, the people who did all the dirty work for him all died the same day before he became president in hours. Hours. 
So what's so interesting is that he had people that did dirty work for him. Like he knew how to get rid of his own enemies. Uh, believe it or not, the Bath Party, the Bath political party, wasn't that bad of a political party. They had some kind of ethics. They have some kind of people. What he did is he came in, got rid of all the religious people. Anybody that had a religious belief, got rid of them. And what he does is he uses people to get rid of other people. And then he kills the people that he used. It, it really is just, you don't have, you, like, you just sit, you don't know what the hell's going on. Because he killed somebody and that somebody died. Where's the truth? You don't, just don't know what happened. So all of a sudden, when he became a president, um, before he became a president, hours before, I'm ta not talking about that room only when they announced you know, him being the president, even the gangster that helped him, taught him some of the street skills or knew something about him when he was a kid that some people he hang out with when he was a child who happened to be uh, members of a gang. And these guys, they taught him all the street skills, everything, all the shooting stuff that he needed to learn. Someone went to their door, took him out, shot him in the head. They were all dead. So like the n number of people that died that day as he got on that stage, it was massive. Anybody that knew anything about him died. There's a famous video you can Google of when Saddam seized control of the country. In this video, he stands up to address the members of the Iraqi government. He then proceeds to name off each of his political rivals while his guards drag them out of the building. What you don't see in the video is that those people were quickly executed. Images like these were permanent reminders of the brutality of the regime for which he had to live under. Oh my God! And then he called them by he called them by names, and, it, and you can see as soon as he called the name, some people with a uniform comes in, picks the guy, and pushes him through the door. They took him to a hallway in the back of that building and shot him in the head. And what here's what he did that day. So he took them out. He chose like ten people, ten people random who had no not been part of this group, gave him guns and said, you execute them. So the other people came in and executed these guys, and then he chose another 10 people that went and killed the other 10 people that killed that group. I mean, it was some people shot their own brothers. And it, the, the, the thing is, is that if someone said, I, I think one person said, I didn't want to kill anybody, they killed him immediately. So the others just took the gun and shot the others. And it, it really just the uh, ideology, that, that kind of violence that this guy had, It was he left no evidence perhaps um when he was the head of intelligence not many people know that when he was the head of intelligence in iraq he made one of his top intelligent operatives goes and kidnap three ministers one of them was the minister of defense it was a big deal made them say we have a secret Facility we want to present to you guys. So come with no security, no guards, no no personal security detail. Took him <laughs> and killed that guy. Killed the three ministers who happened to be people who might be and uh, not a, not a friendly with Saddam, who's been his enemies, 
and then he made another team go and kill that guy. It was just to the point like he kills the truth. Like he 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 makes it happen, and then he kills anybody that knows what happened, and that's that's how it is. You know that country was policed with about thirty-five intelligence agencies. Yeah, like we were policed. You're like trained to to know not to talk about certain things. I mean, I'll tell you this. During Saddam Hussein time, we were not allowed to talk about any politics. People did not trust each other. Perhaps he made the whole country report on each other. That any reports get written, get submitted to the Ba'ath Party members in your area, get submitted to the Supreme. Everyone is spying on each other. Perhaps we had brothers reported other, their own brothers. We have wives reported their own husbands to keep control. The whole country was living on intel reports. And if you come home and you told your mom, is Saddam a good guy? Your mom probably would slap you or would just ignore you walk away. Because even parents couldn't talk. They ha we have a saying saying even the walls had ears. You couldn't talk. I live next door to a bath party member. If you make the wrong move, that guy will put a whole entire report. And the next thing you know, the, the intelligence are taking you away for interrogations. I, I didn't know much of it until I actually went to prison when I was 12. And I refused to give money to a bath party member who was a police officer. And I went to actually a political prison. So it wasn't a regular prison. Um, it, it wasn't anything political that I have done. I just refused to give like 250 dinners, whatever. It was like stupid, like five bucks. Uh, I went for about three, four weeks. It was like three weeks and a half. And what happened is this thing got escalated is that I refused to give him my money. It was a common thing. They asked you to give your wallet, you give it to them. I had put money over the years and I wanted to like buy something for myself. And I actually didn't have a shoe. My shoe was open like halfway. And I walked to school. And it was just, you know, like uh, imagine you use the same shoe for three years until it can't fit you anymore. Until you grow out of it. That's, that's what you had during the sections, you know, like you didn't have the capabilities. You bought used clothes. It wasn't easy. Um, and then this guy pulled over and he asked if I have any cigarettes. It was a common thing, you know, like the teenagers smoked. And and he, I just walked away from him. And he got out, searched me, found the money. He hit me and I cursed him. When he hit me, he slapped me hard. And he was like a six foot tall and I was only 12 year old. And he hit me down and it's a big thing in our culture. If you curse somebody, it, it's, it's like a stupid. And I said something terrible to the guy. And... He grabbed me and threw me in the car. And you can tell the difference between a bath party member and a regular police officer. It's like there's something about them that looks shiny, different, the way they talk, the way they dress, the way their uniform is set. It's different. And the way they talk, you can see this guy is just a normal element average police officer. This is a bath party member. Uh, they have their pens in a certain way. And the guy was talking to me, guy of power. So I didn't know who that is. I was a kid. I didn't really distinguish, but I can see he's different. He put me in the car, and I was, and I still remember a conversation that went on between uh, the the two guards who sat next to me, and uh, the um, him sitting in the front. And they said, "Hey, he's just a kid. Just slap him and let him go home. You took his money. Just let him go home. He's his child, you know." And, and he turned around, and he said, "If you keep talking, I'm gonna throw you. Where I'm throwing him tonight." And the guy next to me was like about maybe late 50s. His was maybe about in his 30s. And the older guy just kept quiet. Shaked his head and just kept quiet. And at that point, I knew I wasn't going home. And it was late. It was like around 4 p.m. And they drove so far, it got dark. 
It was winter, and I didn't know where the hell I was going. So the car drove about 45 minutes from where I lived. And there was this gate. I remember driving through Baghdad. It was where the Ministry of Interior was. And we see guards, but we don't know what's in that road. What goes in there? This is the head of intelligence, the headquarters of all these ministries. and It's a private road. Perhaps you have to pass checkpoint, and then you go. And once I passed that checkpoint, I said, I think my life at this point is over. And it's a, it's a private road full of guards. I drove... And I, I, I saw a big building that I've never seen before in my whole life, and it was the Ministry of Interior. And he didn't go to it. He took a ride. And a, a slide big, it's like a concrete wall, and the big slide door opened. And as soon as the slide door opened, I look uh, from the headlights, I see that it's like cages. Look like a fence. And behind the fence is dark, but I see fence. I see like a long line of fence. And it looked something concrete behind the fence. I don't know what the hell it was. And I, I sat in the car, and I was handcuffed. And um, he went inside. They got out. He went to a room, and it was a lot of guards. And I got called out of the car. And I saw him um, with a pen and a paper. He, he was writing something. And I enter the room, and as soon as I enter the room, I see plenty of guys, big guys carrying bats in their hands. It was like, it's not like a baseball bat. It's actually like a long, it is. It looked like a kind of long witting thing. And I'm just looking at him like, what am I going to do here? Like, what are they going to do? And I was hoping to the last minute they would let me go. Like, they would make me sign something and say, go home or call my parents. That's everything in my head. And he says, sign. And I took the pen. And they're all looking at me. And I look at the pen. And I, I, I didn't even read. I was hoping that I will sign and go home. I signed. And I didn't realize I signed that a paper stated I was a, an anti-government person who attacked a Ba'ath Party member, tried to assassinate him. And I signed on it. And it was a long paper. I didn't even know what he wrote. I just signed. I signed. And as soon as I signed, I got dragged. To that hallway. I went actually behind the fence. And it was a metal door. And the bars, it's not like an American prison where you have bathrooms. It was a warehouse. And, and it was all concrete. And the bar, it was about maybe this uh, half of my hands. It was about maybe you can say what? That's a, not even two feet. So it was a small little window that I saw. It was about two feet. And it had a bar in it. And that's where they can talk to people. But everything else is concrete. They went to the door and I got smacked as I went in. And I went in. I sat there. And it was like about 500 people. There was no beds. It was just concrete floor. Stuffed in, in the ground. And I have kept half of the money in my socks. Because they never searched me. Because I always like carry some half of it in my wallet. Have I'll put it somewhere else in case if someone take it. And I went in, the prisoners looked at me, and they're like, who, who are you fighting with? Like, man, who, who, who are you with? And I'm like, I'm with nobody. I just refuse to give my money. And the prisoner was like, like, you're stupid? He's like, they don't bring regular people here. He's like, you must have done something for you. He's like, do you know this is not a regular prison? And I said, I don't know what this is. I said, I'm hoping they will let me go. He said, no, there's no way you're going anywhere. 
He said, this, you're going to go to the bath party um, Supreme Jobs. He's like, a lot of people leave here. They don't come back. They die. So he's like, what did you do to be here? I said, I just refused to give this guy my money. He said, what did he make you do? I said, he gave me a paper and I signed it. He said, do you know what he wrote in it? I said, no. I have no idea. I mean, I mean, I was a 12-year-old kid. I didn't know anything. I, I, I sat and I cried and I didn't know like... The one thing I cared about that day, it was, I, I knew at that point I wasn't going to go home. I cared about how can I tell my family that this is what happened to me? Like, how would they ever know? Because this happened in Iraq a lot. People left, never came back, disappeared. And I, I'm sitting there, the prisoner said, he said, he said you know, it's going to be all right. Just, I said, well, is there any way I can call my family? on the landline or anything. And he said, you know, he said, nothing here, it's easy. And I said, I even have money. And he said, you have money? I said, I do. I have, I have 250 that I kept in my, in my socks. And the prisoner immediately says, give me the money. And I took the money and I gave it to him. And he took me with him and he's like, do you know the phone number? Like the, 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 we had landlines, we didn't have cell phone or internet, nothing in Iraq at that time. So I wrote the number and there was a guard after everybody leaves at night that guard goes to the commander's office, the commander of the prison, and cleans that office in the middle of the night. And that guard was corrupted, so he will take money and go make phone calls. And, and not you talking in the phone, he'll just make, if you want to send a message to your family, he'll just go do it behind, it's a landline, like, you know, they couldn't tell who's, who's using it. He'll go clean the office, and he'll make that so quick as he's cleaning the office. So he called that guard. It was like 11.30 at night. And they called the guard and he talked to him. I gave him the number. And the guard took the money and he said, it's not guaranteed that I'll make that phone call. And he said, if you're one of your family members don't answer, that's on you. I gave him the number and I said, I said, look, just tell me who answers it. Ask them for their name. That's all I need from you. And he went and he came back and he gave me my brother's name. And at that point, my family was out there looking in the middle of the night, going through the roads, school, asking people, did you see anything? Nothing. Nobody knew anything. When he gave me my brother a name at that point, I think I, I kind of like just sat and accepted my reality and I just sat in the prison. And the, you know, at that point, I said, okay, that's it. You know, like my life is done. I'm not leaving here. Probably I'll die here. That's it. And the prisoner said, don't get too comfortable. He said, there's turns here on getting hit, and they might call your name. And at the time, some of the prisoners had drugs. They said, if you can't handle being beaten, we'll give you something that will numb you. And I didn't want to take it. I said, no, I'm, I'm, I didn't do anything. And he said, look, Wednesday says disco time, you're going to get hurt. And they call it disco time. And what it is, is they take you out of the prison, they call your name, they take you to the end of that hallway, and there's a room, maybe about two meter by one meter, and it has no window, it looks like a bathroom. You go in and it's painted all red, and it looks like a butcher store where you can, chains going from the ceiling, and they hang you from your legs upside down, where your blood goes down into your head, within about two minutes or so, you will have the most strongest headache you ever experienced in your life. And then they'll start beating you. 
And that's what the bats are for. I went in, I think I passed out within minutes. And I don't remember going back from, I remember going in, but I don't remember going back. I woke up in prison. I, actually, I didn't even know. If, if I had a confession at the time, I would have gave it. If they have asked me if, I, if I'm planning to attack the government, I would have said yes. So they can let me go. At that point, you're dying anyway, but you just don't want to get tortured. And what I'm looking is at the names as I went in is that this, the guy who brought me to prison had a last name. And we go by tribals in Iraq. And the tribe he was from is in the Ambar province. He's like originally from the Ambar province. And the other people who are beating me have the same last name. They're like his cousins, his tribal members. And I got taken back to prison. I woke up there. And the, the prisoner said, he said, they're going to go back again. He's like, they're going to come back tomorrow, and they'll come back after tomorrow. And he's like, they'll come back until you leave out of here. And I said, where, I leave where? He said, you're not leaving anywhere, but if you go out of here, you go to Supreme Judge, and you're done. And I didn't realize at that point I was being considered an enemy of the state, not a child at that point. I was not being treated as a kid. I was being treated as an enemy of the state. And I, my family have figured out where I was. Because when that guy made the phone call, told them where I was. And my family showed up. I didn't know that until I got out. Uh, and started negotiating with the, with the uh, commander of the prison. The commander of the prison says, give, give me a certain amount of money. I'll smash the report. And you guys take him home. Or if you guys don't come up with a certain amount of money, he will go to Awad al-Bender, which was executed with Saddam in his trial. He was the Saddam's uh, top judge. He said he'll go to Awad al-Bender, and Awad al-Bender was known to be, he will separate a 1,000 person by 500 each, and he will say 500 get executed, 500 go as underground prison. And underground prison is actually a lot worse than being executed. So a lot of people would prefer to die than go to the underground prison. And he was putting these fear tactics to my family so they can come up with as much money. So my family went in, they got some money, people sold animals, gold whatever jewelry they have and came back gave him the money and i don't know what the hell was going on at that point at that point i was at a drunken mood after three weeks i am numb i don't know what's going on um i didn't eat that well because they they don't give you food they give you actually hot water with chickpeas and the chickpeas are not cooked they're just been like not even boiled they actually just been in the water so when you take the chickpeas, you can strip the skin out of them, but when you eat it, it's hard chickpeas. And the bread, it's, we call it military bread, you can actually like hit someone in the head with that bread. You can use it as a weapon house. And it, and it really is it's just like, it's a tough bread. You can't break with your own teeth. You have to make a hole in it so you can eat the inside of it. And I look at the chickpeas, and I, I just can't eat it. I couldn't go to the bathroom. It was only like one bathroom to the end of the thing uh, full of rats. And I just, at that point, I, I just, I was just looking. I was like, I hope I can just die now so I don't have to see what tomorrow look like. And um, I was at a, at a point I was broken. I was done. And at that point, I was really like looking forward to either get shot, get executed. I was looking for it. I was like, I don't want to live here or age here. And I still remember one scene from that prison. There's some people that have been there forever. They went crazy. 
And I still remember an old man sitting in the ground. And he had a lighter in his hand. And he was bald. He had lost his hair. He was sick. And it looked like the man was a normal man when he came in. But from getting beaten and getting hit to the head, he has lost it. And I still remember that man would turn the lighter on and he would put it around his head. And I didn't know why that man was doing that. And I would just look at that, a 12-year-old, I'm looking at that guy putting like fire literally around his head. He's not feeling it. It, it freaked me out. At that point, I was just in a nightmare. I was in a 24-hour nightmare. And uh, I, in the morning, I, my name got called on. And it wasn't usual because they usually... During the day, they didn't do too much to you. During the night, they beat you, and then they'll let you go during the day. And then they will wake you up. Even though they beat you at night, they'll wake you up at 5 o'clock to count how many of you. So you, you're like, you don't know what a sleep looks like. Uh, if an officer opened the door, you all have to get up. And they count you guys, and then, then you go back. It's just a disturbance. And a psychological break. I mean, later on, I realized the red was a psychological move to make sure you don't see anything but just red around you. And I came out, and I felt at that point that this was my death time. I came out, and it, I never went that way because I usually go to the left to get tortured. This time, they took me to the right. So I said, it's over. It looked like I'm getting executed. And they took me to an area where I'd never been in three weeks. Uh, it was like the, the, it's like the middle of the prison. <clears throat> they took me outside, and I, I saw the three weeks later, I see the slide door again. And I, I'm sitting there, um, and I had put the handcuffs, and one of them came in, put the handcuffs in my hand, and he squeezed them pretty hard, where actually the nerve numbed my, the rest of my arm. And uh, there was another one behind him, like another officer behind him. He said, lose it. Like you're hurting his hand. He said, well, if they see me, I'll get in trouble. And he said, lose it. Just lose it on him. And he, he, he loosed the, the handcuffs a little because my arms were really turning blue. And then the slide door opened. And when the slide door opened, I see my dad standing there. When I saw my dad, I was just like, at that point, you know, I went from... Being like thinking you're gonna die to what's gonna happen next. And they opened the handcuffs and they said, Go. I mean, to me, is this, I turn, you know, I just looked around and the last thing I seen, it was the prisoner who held me looking through the, the five, the two, three feet little bar at me. Cause they didn't know if I was gonna get hit, when they get shot, what's gonna happen. And I just looked at that face, and I walked out. And I, I, didn't, I didn't say anything to my dad at that point. I, I just looked at my dad, and I, I just had no words. Um, my dad took me home, and I went home, and I went immediately to the doctor. They had to look at my bag. They had to see if I got any diseases, if, if you know, not being able to shower, bleeding, no, no alcohol. It was, it was a bad situation. I literally... Um, I didn't break anything, but my skin was in bad, bad condition. My back, specifically my back. To this day, my back is not, is not healthy uh, to that point. Um, I mean, I was sleeping in the floor, in the concrete floor. There was no beds or pillow, nothing like that. I, I came out of my dad just, you know, had no words for me. Uh, my family was mad at me that, why the hell did you give the money? 
Like you could have died for what? You just give him the money. You don't say anything. And I, I came out and I went from being like an A student to being an F student. I didn't have any interest in going to school anymore. I would just show up to school and I wouldn't even know what, what am I studying. And I failed. Like literally, I, I was failing school. I was, I was not doing well. And I just, just showed up to just for because my family wanted me to. And uh, everything changed for me. Like I, I think I, I walked, what do we say, by the wall until Sudan fell in 2003. That's when really like for me, it was like a golden opportunity because I had no hope. Like I thought Sudan would be there for 500 years. So this was life. Not just for Hamity, but for every Iraqi under Saddam, with no end in sight. For all he knew, Saddam would be in power for 500 years. Then September 11th happened. Yeah, I just, I, all I remember from 9-11 is they played it on TV, people celebrated it, and my bath party f- fucked up neighbor came out and said, the Sheikh, they call him Sheikh Osama Bin Laden, he was like, the Sheikh hit America, and... and and destroyed America and I didn't know what that meant and I just went I looked at the TV and I see like pictures of the towers going down and people celebrating and inside of me I'm like why are you guys celebrating someone else's death Uh, and of course you can't say anything you just watch it in a quiet mode and you looked at it and you you went to your room You, you, you just didn't have a voice I mean to the point you just don't even think about it I mean for me it's like I'm not allowed to say a damn word after that point. I'm like, it's like the guy who was on probation. He can't say anything. I came out and, and I just looked at it, went in my room, closed the door. I mean, I, to me, I, I was quiet. I didn't say anything. I just watched it and watched people celebrate. It's like all these, all these people who probably were faking their joy because they had to. So the bath party member doesn't write any reports on you saying, oh, this guy didn't look too happy about this. And people are just faking everything they do it was just like a role playing it's very similar like North Korea what they live in is exactly how we were living this concludes part one of this incredible story with Hamidi Jassim the terrorist whisperer here's a sample from the next episode and as soon as I look the first RPG hit the first truck behind me and perhaps as I turn I can see the gunner flying away because it was not like a Humvee or armored it was like a pickup truck so when you when you shoot a bullet it comes in from one side gets out of the other Toyota trucks and uh, and the first RPG hit and bullets started coming at you we didn't know where the hell they were they were behind us like literally behind the walls inside of those buildings looking at us, waiting for us to go down. And once we went down, they, they, they got the high ground. Everybody in those vehicles died immediately. 